Hello, everyone, and welcome to the year's last Around the World in 20 Minutes as we continue to try to make sense of the beguiling new planet we find ourselves on. I hope you all had a great Christmas. Uh, we sit in this lovely week between Christmas and New Year where I, for once, have almost nothing to do. I sent in my uh, 2024 calls, political risk predictions, as I always do to City AM, the newspaper of the City of London. And, of course, I'm waiting for the New Year where all hell will catch Catch us as we move for the last best hope that in just a few days now, I need you on the 10th of January, everybody to go on Amazon, give us the five stars, either say love the book or can't wait to receive the book. And on that one great and glorious day, and I will prompt you incessantly as a community, we need everybody to get Jeff Bezos's algorithm to work for us. But ahead of this and ahead of the predictions coming out, I thought you I'd, I'd give our community the in-depth predictions of political risk for 2024. As you all know, I have the naive, if revolutionary, Jeffersonian view that all of us should be judged in my business by our call records, and ours is the best in the business. We weren't wrong about Iraq. We weren't wrong about Afghanistan. We weren't wrong about the financial crisis. We weren't wrong about Brexit. We weren't wrong about the rise of China, and we're not wrong about the rise of India. Judge us by our record. And nobody's is better. And we put that on the line every single year. We're making five predictions this year. Uh, we're going to go over two from last year, one we got absolutely right and one we did not. And we will look at that. We've added it up. Our record is at about 81% since we started this 16 years ago. I defy anyone to be nearly so good. And unlike the rest of the octopuses in the profession, on the one hand, on the other hand, on the other hand, on the other hand, we actually make predictions you can follow. The only way to be good in method acting, ask Montgomery Cliff, Marlon Brando, or anyone of that ilk, is to learn from your successes and learn from your failures, be open to both, and try to always do better and reach perfection. Of course we won't, but it's the journey that matters. And I'm thrilled with our um, staff for doing this and working crazily up until Christmas, giving them the week off. So I'm in the studio here with Witch, Witchington, my head researcher, and Tato, Winston Churchill, family named Tato. The two cats and I are going to take you through our five predictions for the year. And wanted to share this just with the community as a thank you ahead of us having this crazy busy year where we try to make the last best hope not only a bestseller, that would be great, but more importantly, a book of genuine political importance. That's what we're playing for. Here we go, though. Our 2020-24 calls, and there are, I believe, five of them in total. As the English theologian Thomas Fuller put it, it's always darkest before the dawn. After a highly unsatisfying 2023, we can only fervently hope that Fuller's plaintive prayer is right. As to political risk in 2024, despite all the storm clouds, I do think he is. But first, the bad news that will enable the good. Our first prediction is the Zelensky government will be unable to turn the tide of the war in Ukraine. Put simply, we said last year the war would be a stalemate. We were about the only major political risk firm to say this. If you remember all the cheerleading, the wish casting, the wishful thinking, we said the war would be a stalemate. And now we say in 2024, a stalemate means that Ukraine is actually losing the war, and this will continue. The stalemate will move to Ukraine losing. My political risk firm was one of only a handful, and I'm being generous, I really can't think of another, to dispense with the general wish-casting of last January in the City AM column, where we clearly said, and correctly, 
the Russo-Ukrainian war would descend into stalemate. So Andrew Michta, Phillips O'Brien, shame on you for continuing to pontificate when it's clear you're cheerleading and calling the war would be an easy victory, along with Ann Applebaum and the rest of the neocons and liberal Wilsonian triumphalists. And we said the war would descend into stalemate, which certainly it has. For goodness sake, even the head of the Ukrainian general staff thinks the war is a stalemate. As we predicted, the overhyped Ukrainian offensive dissolved in the face of Russian mines and Moscow's ability to throw thousands of men into the meat grinder of Bakhmut and other World War I-style battlefields. It's World War I. That's why you don't see it on the television. It's artillery shells and drones being lobbed backwards and forwards. However, stalemate doesn't mean someone isn't winning. Given its huge advantage in manpower and greater ability to manufacture and acquire weaponry, stalemate means that Russia is actually winning the war. In 2024, things will only get worse as the U.S. tires of supporting a cause that amounts to only a peripheral interest. Russia has a greater ability to manufacture on its own, by far, and acquire weaponry from others. With the U.S. tiring of the war because Ukraine is only a third-order priority, and with the Europeans, the lotus eaters, unable as ever to actually give Ukraine what it needs, it promised them a million shells last year, and it gave them, in terms of artillery, less than half of that. This difference means the stalemate, like World War I, someone eventually won the war. Russia is actually winning, and this will become very clear in 2024. At best, Kiev will just about manage to hold on to the 80% of the country it now retains. Remember that last year, for all the cheerleading of Phillips O'Brien and Applebaum, the neocons, how easy a victory this was going to be, Ukraine actually lost territory. It holds less territory today than it did a year ago. It will be lucky to hold on to the 80% of the country it now retains, and at worst, it will lose more land. Gone is any serious hope of throwing Putin out of the country, despite President Zelensky increasingly his increasing delusions, which look sillier and sillier. The sooner the Zelensky government heads to the negotiating table from its waning position of strength, the better. This means losing the Donbass de facto, if not de jure, at least a good portion of it, wherever the armistice line is, as in Korea, that's where the line will be, and certainly de facto losing Crimea. However, then Ukraine can begin to think about EU membership, building up its military in a porcupine strategy, and continuing. Any other course of action is simply either virtue signaling or magical thinking. It's time to call out the 90 plus percent of analysts out there, and I mean you by name, Andrew Michta, who thinks this is a cakewalk, Phillips O'Brien, and somehow blames us for not supplying Ukraine with us. I would argue that Ukraine is inherently unable to win this war, however much wherewithal we give a third order priority. So 2024, we'll see that stalemate, which we called last year, will actually mean Russia is winning the war. It's time for a negotiated settlement. However, this won't happen given the delusions till at least late in next year and probably later than that. And that's number one. Number two, Israel will win in quotations the Gaza war, but it's already lost the peace. Israel will already win the Gaza war, but it's already lost the peace. What do I mean by that? Well, there's little doubt that Israel, with the strongest army in the region, will come to dominate the whole of the Gaza Strip. In political risk terms, it's a case of too little, too late. 
because before the Gaza War, the Saudis were close to joining President Trump's creative Abraham Accords initiative, which saw the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan Sudan established diplomatic relations with Israel in a common strategic alliance directed against Iran. They sidestepped the Palestinian question, which has become for two generations now an intellectual roadblock, a brain-dead notion that we don't have to think about the Middle East, and the more important issue of Iranian adventurism, of the Shia crescent going from the Houthis in Yemen up through Iran, into the dominance of Iraq, into the dominance of Lebanon with Hezbollah, and into the dominance of Syria. To combat this, the, the Abram Accord said, let's park the Middle East and the Palestinian initiative, worry about what really matters, Iran, and get the UAE, Bahrain, Mor Morocco, Sudan on board, the Gulf states, plus others, and the Saudis, of course, winking this through. Riyadh, however, was due to join this, and this would have left Tehran facing its primary enemies, the U.S., Saudi Arabia, and Israel, the big three, the great and little Satans for Iran, increasingly bonded together against it. And at all costs, this was what Iran set out to stop and did. This is the key political risk context explaining the advent of the Gaza war. While Israel will undoubtedly win in quotes the war, the bleak truth is that it's already lost the peace. For given the pro-Palestinian fervor, unleashed onto the Saudi street in the aftermath of Israel's incursion into Gaza, there's simply no way that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman can go ahead with the Abraham Accord deal. He'd love to. I don't think MBS has any loyalty, unlike his father, who has a romantic attachment from a generation before to the Palestinian cause. I don't think of that of MBS, but I think looking at the street, he knows there's simply no way he can go ahead with the Abraham Accord deal. This means Iran has already achieved its strategic objective. And that's the second call. The third call, though, is a bit more positive than all this. A realist revolution in American foreign policy, and that's what the last best hope is about, is coming with Donald Trump reclaiming the White House. Well, this is Trump is the best of times and the worst of times for my firm. We very early on, earlier than anyone, and if you look, called that Trump would indeed win the White House next time. And this is because we corrected from getting this wrong, which we did last January. And my only comment about getting things wrong when people give me a gotcha moment is this is an art and not a science. The question of all of our colleagues should be, do we add value? Do we do better than the APE score of 50%, unlike others like Eurasia, which don't? Uh, great at marketing, not so good at the analysis. Um, and the reality is, as Maynard Keynes said, when the facts change, I change my opinion. Don't you? The facts have changed. We were wrong last year to say that Trump was done. He was indeed the Harry Houdini, which we did acknowledge last year, of American politics. But not only is he not done, we were really the first major firm to call that he's going all the way and winning the White House. The best news of all is that the bad news, the failures in Ukraine, the failures in the Middle East, mean that at last there's going to be corrective consequences in the U.S., after a generation of abject failure, the fevered, hyperactive, unipolar foreign policy of both the neoconservatives and the Wilsonian triumphalists is on its way out politically with the coming of a realist Republican administration. And don't we hear it? I read the Times of London every day and the panic is growing from Robert Kagan. By the way, why is anyone listening to the man who was the primary cheerleader of the Iraq war without calling him to account for being the primary cheerleader of the Iraq war. 
in a republic, if we don't hold people to account, we live in a sick republic. The fact that the rest of the press takes this guy seriously, along with Ann Applebaum, David Frum, Max Boot, after the calamity of Iraq, beggars description. This is not what happened to the clowns who got us into the Vietnam War. McGeorge Bundy never did become dean of Harvard. Robert McNamara was all but ostracized at Council on Foreign Relations meetings, where I actually came to know him and admire his honesty about his failures. That's certainly not what we have with the neocons. They are not troubled by self-reflection. But the rest of us should intellectually ostracize people who've been wrong about everything. Instead, Robert Kagan, wrong again, is talking about the end of democracy. If Trump wins, what he means is the end of his influence. There's a difference, and we need to hold him that to that. Why will Trump win? Why, why all the hysteria from the establishment? Well, three reasons. One, it's the prices, stupid. It's not the economy. Everybody gets this wrong about Bidenomics. If you look at the cumulative inflation rate rise under Biden since he came to power, it's nearing 20%. The fact that inflation, the rate has gone down now, doesn't make anyone feel better because we know that coming out of COVID, Biden spent money placating his progressive left. They ran the table in the House and the Senate and spent money like a drunken sailor. And surprise to surprise, too much printed money chasing too few goods leads to, you heard it here, inflation, as Larry Summers got right amongst others, as, as did we, frankly, get right. That's another call we got right. Um, this inflation, the fact that the rate of inflation is now slowed, doesn't, doesn't affect anyone. They still say, before COVID, I could afford to go to McDonald's or Outback Steakhouse. Now I can't. And they are right because it's the prices that matter. There isn't deflation. The prices aren't going back down. And so Biden owns inflation and owns the rise in prices. It's cumulative, but people remember back to before COVID. It wasn't that long ago. And they know that Biden's spending money like a drunken sailor coming out of COVID, spiked inflation, the genie left the bottle, the Paul Volcker's magic with Reagan in taming the beast of inflation for two generations was held in abeyance. Inflation got out of control. Now that they're beginning to get it back under control, doesn't mean prices aren't incredibly higher, making a cost of living crisis make the reason that Biden is now below 40%, the marginal level for a president to matter. That's because of prices. Secondly, he's just too old. We all know this. Again, this will happen to me. I hope I retire long before then. Happened to my father. I'm not making fun of the man, but I'm saying we shouldn't have Paul von Hindenburg as president. A man in his 80s should be playing with his grandchildren, not changing the channels on the TV set, let alone running a country. He's constantly off script. Can you imagine if they actually let him debate her out of the basement? What's going to happen? Everyone knows this. 40% of Democrats even acknowledge this. A majority of independents and a vast majority of Republicans. He has prices to blame for his failure. He's too old for his failure. And this third point, why will Trump win? Because the discredited U.S. elite, symbolized by the tired Joe Biden, is held in so low esteem. This is the panic of Kagan, Max Boot, David Front, and Applebaum. They're used to running the world. And not only are they going to lose an election, but they're being held in low esteem. At last, the corrective system in a republic is working. The U.S. elite is increasingly disdained because of a generation's litany of catastrophe. It's not one thing. It's every big thing. 
Jeffersonian and Jacksonian realist populists in the GOP are entirely in lockstep over the basic narrative, the elite's record is undeniably appalling. Think of it for a minute. Take a step back. Iraq, Afghanistan, the financial crisis, and the botched response to COVID. Iraq, Afghanistan, the financial crisis, and the calamity of COVID. Four gigantic world historical issues, and the elite that I just named has been wrong about all of them. While somehow the oblivious coastal elites still think it is self-evident they should run things, the rest of us simply know better. Look for the measured American realism based on specific, clearly defined U.S. interests, internationalist, but a country of restraint, of FDR, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Nixon, and Reagan begin to make a comeback in 2024. That would surely be the dawn. Our third call, our fourth call, uh, and a bonus one, the next two, is there'll be no war this year over Taiwan between peer superpower competitors, China and the U.S. This gives the U.S. time to bolster its deterrence in the region with allies through the AUKUS Defense Alliance, which is the U.S., Australia, U.K., and the quadrilateral initiative of the U.S., India, Australia, and Japan. If Washington can cause Beijing to hesitate in pulling the trigger, and remember the CIA, and I think this is right, as, as the U.S., uh, uh, Pacific Fleet talk about, think that the window for invasion is from about 2027 to, say, 2031-32, this four- or five-year window starting in 2027. Um, this is the strategic window, and if we can cause them to hesitate, it will close. Uh, given that the Indo-Pacific is the most important region in the world, with much of the world's future growth, as well as most of its political risk, this effort is everything. They have their own timetable, the Chinese, which is why they're not going this year. For all that the neocons are trying to make this World War III, these are three very specific crises, um, Ukraine, Gaza, and Taiwan. And they have their own timetable. They don't care that we're preoccupied. They care about their timetable. And their clock starts running in 2027. This gives us just a little bit of time to get our deterrent house in order. And this is everything. As the Indo-Pacific is the most important region in the world, with much of the planet's future economic growth, as well as most of its future political risk. So this effort at deterrence is everything. And here's to saving the world. And our fifth call, final call, is there's some interesting numbers out. And long-term economic numbers uh, tend to not to be worth the paper they're printed on, but they do show the direction of travel. And these numbers are amazing. That China will briefly overtake the U.S. in the 2030s or 40s, perhaps as the world's largest economy, though per capita-wise, far inferior, far inferior to the American economy. But given its demography, the U.S. will pass it again, the amazingly resilient U.S. economy in the 2040s and 2050s. And then late on in the century, our century, the 21st century, India, India will come to have the largest economy in the world in around 2080, it's predicted. predicted. It has a vast mass of industries. It's not a one-shop export economy like China. Its demography, is, as we've said many times, is by far the most favorable in the world. The only country in the world with, with uh, catch-up growth being a young population where it can boom. Um, it's politically stable. Look for Narendra Modi to win a third term uh, this next coming year. And India will be the third superpower. We will live in a tripolar world increasingly as the century goes on. This is the big call. That's a wonderful world. That's a world with two Anglosphere countries 
two English-speaking countries who were colonies of the British, who have, because of that background, a belief in individual liberty, parliamentary democracy, the dignity and sanctity of individual rights, property rights, capitalism, and the similar orientation. I can't wait to live in a world that is Asia-centric, but also Anglosphere-centric, where power has shifts between the British, the Americans, and the Indians. This is a world that is similar to the one that we've lived in with an Asian twist, but one where two of the great superpowers, India and the United States, have an awful lot of common cause. And that is a very, very happy way to end the old year, looking at this big picture of a world dominated by Asia and the Anglosphere, ultimately. So what are our five calls? Number one, very gloomy, look for Ukraine to continue to lose the war, and this to be evident to even its worst cheerleaders, Phillips O'Brien and Andrew Mikta, this is you. Two, uh, that Israel's already lost the strategic war over Gaza, even if it wins, in quotes, on the ground. It's stopped from Saudi Arabia joining with the U.S. and Israel to gang up on Iran. Three, in a much more positive note, look for the realist revolution that the last best hope talks about to begin. Revolutions take time. It's merely the first step. But look for the beginning of this realist re revolution to throw out our discredited foreign policy elite of neocons and liberal Wilsonian triumphalists. Hence, Robert Kagan squealing about the end of democracy when he really means the end of his own influence. Thank God, well past time. Four, look indeed as time goes on for China not to go to invade this year. It's got its own timetable. It has a very different view of things than if it were all connected through World War III with Gaza and Ukraine. It's not. Its own timetable means we still have a few years ahead of 2027 to get our house in order. And fifth, the key, we are heading to a tripolar world in the next, in our century, the 21st century. The good news is two of those poles, India and the United States, have a common Anglosphere heritage believe in the, the sanctity of the individual, the dignity of the individual and his rights, a parliamentary democratic system, property rights, and this is a world with an Anglosphere world with an Asian twist that we can all pass on to our children if we can manage it. As Franklin said about the Constitution, when asked what kind of government you will have, he said you will have a republic if you can keep it. Nothing is inevitable, but these last three predictions lead me to see that there will indeed be a dawn after the darkness. Thanks very much. A wonderfully positive way to get these five calls out there for you all. Have a wonderful rest of your holiday. Happy, happy new year. And we will try to go back to normal at some point soon in the new year. But no, I'm thinking about you. Very excited for the year ahead for us to work together. And for, for those of you who haven't subscribed, please do so. And those of you who, who haven't given, please do now. Now is a great time because we're going to be so busy and I want to keep to our three uh, podcasts a week rule. That means I need merely the $70 of the coffee I'm just about to go to make with Witch here in Tattoo. Have a wonderful, wonderful new year.